the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back to date, Dr. Viennes. Dr. Viennes is a board-certified fellowship-trained specialist in the treatment of foot and ankle conditions. His last podcast was on athletic injuries of the ankle, which included shin splints, Achilles tendonitis, perineal tendonitis, high ankle sprains, posterior tibialis tendon dysfunctions and insufficiency, and osteochondral defects of the talus. Dr. Viennes, welcome back. And we are going to discuss athletic injuries of the foot. First up, plantar fasciitis. And as you know, probably the most common thing I see in my walk-in clinic just curious, what's your algorithm for treating this? And are there any red flags? What kind of thoughts do you have on plantar fasciitis? Just like you said, it's super common. And I almost feel like everybody is going to get plantar fasciitis at some point in their life, whether an athlete or non-athlete, people who've never gotten off the couch to the pros. I mean, everybody gets it for a variety of reasons at some point, unfortunately. The biggest thing I tell patients is that it, it will get better almost always but it might take a long time and a long time may mean a year or more. But the good thing about it is not a dangerous problem. A lot of it's just based on your symptoms and how much you can manage it. You're not really necessarily making the problem worse by doing more on it. And in fact, some ways you're probably helping it by doing things on it because you're helping get it stretched out. The biggest thing I tell people that's going to help is time and stretching. There is no shoe. There is no insert. There is no fancy device on the internet that will make it go away for everybody. Even though if you look on the internet, you'll find a million things and that should probably tip you off that none of them are really going to work. Cause if there was one thing then that worked, everybody would know about it and whoever invented it would be a trillionaire, but it's hard. It's hard to treat it, but rolling your foot on a frozen water bottle is a good trick that I've found helps a lot of people sort of ice it, massage it at the same time, really stretching it every time you're inactive before you get out of bed in the morning, before you get up from sitting for lunch, before you get out of the car while you're driving, just to try to warm it up and stretch out that tight, thickened tissue. Wearing good cushioned shoes that are comfortable. And, and that's different for everybody. What that really means. There is no shoe one shoe that's going to be the thing that's going to make plantar fasciitis go away for everybody. Custom inserts, that sort of thing. Patients often ask me about that. I'm fine with it if it makes it feel better, but I wouldn't hold my breath that going to get custom inserts is going to just make your plantar fasciitis go away. Again, if, if it was that easy, then everybody would have them. But oftentimes just getting fit by a good shoe store to make sure you're in something that really actually is the right thing that for your foot, not just what looks cool, is the right thing to do. Night splints, I do think those help a lot because it really helps hold your foot up at that 90 degree position. So you're sort of stretching your plantar fascia all night as opposed to letting it get tighter. Now, some people can't tolerate sleeping in something just because they get restless or they just don't like something touching their legs or, or what have you, but they do work, but they might not work for everybody. A jail heel cup often works too. So cushion on the bottom, but cushioning kind of around the back and, and sides can can help some people. Then it comes down to, you know, people often ask about steroid shots and they say, well, my, my cousin's brother's mailman, it helped. And, and uh, I think I want a shot. And I usually try to talk people out of it because for every one of those patients that it helped, that somebody has a story about, I've got 
many, many more patients that it didn't help. It's not wrong to try it necessarily, but you definitely don't want to keep doing it. And usually there's other tricks you can try beforehand. I'm often more inclined to put somebody on either a prescription dose anti-inflammatory like meloxicam or something like that, or even doing a short burst of oral steroids before I'll do a steroid shot. And the reason is those shots actually are pretty painful to get. Typically, they often don't work. If it does work, it usually doesn't last. And the other thing is, is they can cause other problems. And those other problems can be harder to deal with than the original plantar fasciitis. The main ones being fat pad atrophy, where the cushion on the bottom of the foot goes away. And then that's even worse than having the plantar fasciitis because it really literally is like walking on the bone. I've seen some patients come in after having multiple injections from someone else, and it, it almost looks like a, a skeleton foot, and there's just no padding at all. And, that, and that's just miserable. The other thing it can cause is it can cause you to rupture your plantar fascia, which is probably going to make the tightness of the plantar fascia get better, but that hurts a lot and often means patients end up in a boot for a while and it can take a while to heal. And then sometimes it heals even more scarred than it was before. And then that's even harder to get it better. So really try to, to steer clear of the plantar fascia injections, uh, steroid injections, if we can help it. Uh, again, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but you definitely don't want to chronically get those and I would not have that be at the top of your list of things to do for a physician or PAs, anybody seeing these patients. It tends to be one of the first things that patients get offered uh, in lots of non-foot and ankle specialist orthopedic clinics, primary care, or urgent cares, but it probably shouldn't be. It should be kind of a last resort sort of thing. And even then, oftentimes I'll try to get another trick used before we'll do that. Platelet-rich plasma injections, actually, there is some evidence that maybe that's an option. You know, insurance doesn't typically cover that for most people, but there's even a study that they compared that to doing steroid shots for plantar fasciitis. Pretty well done study on the orthopedic literature showing that it can uh, decrease the thickness of the tendon and improve patient's symptoms or the increased thickness of the fascia, excuse me, and improve symptoms but uh, didn't carry the same risk as doing those steroid shots. So I'll even bring that up to patients sometimes. And then, you know, certainly there are procedures for plantar fasciitis, which is kind of beyond the scope of this talk. Most of the time, those aren't necessary. And I usually counsel patients that you want to be trying stuff pretty consistently and hardcore for at least four to six months before you're even going to think about doing something like that. So that usually helps most people. But a lot of the patients and the runners in particular are usually comforted by hearing a lot of this, that knowing they aren't necessarily making themselves worse by running if they have plantar fasciitis, it's really kind of what you can tolerate. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't hurt yourself running on plantar fasciitis. Now, if you start walking funny, you start walking on the outside border of your foot, or you're just running around on your toes, I mean, you can give yourself another injury and give yourself a stress fracture that sort of thing in, in an effort to not be putting that pressure on your heel. You know, you just end up with a super tight Achilles tendon and then end up with Achilles tendon problems. And, and plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendon problems often do go together. So really not just focusing on stretching the Achilles, but stretching the calf muscle, the gastroc and the soleus, making sure you're isolating both of them can really help. And then there are certainly calcaneal stress fractures too. So some patients, they've been told they have plantar fasciitis and they may indeed have that, but then you do a 
was called a calcaneal squeeze test and kind of side to side pressure on the heel and about jump off the bed. And, and that should really make you think of a calcaneal stress fracture, which you can have. And, and uh, the good thing about those are they heal pretty reliably, but it just takes some time. So, you know, you can have ticks and fleas, as they say. So, you know, might have a couple of things going on. That's sort of my spiel about the plantar fascia thing, but you're absolutely right. It's super common. The most common thing that comes into a, a orthopedic foot and ankle clinic, it, it will get better eventually. So we talk about the athlete, they come in and I, I mean, if you tell a runner, you can't run for four months, you might as well say, give me your birthday. You, you know how that is. What, what are some alternatives? I mean, biking, uh, swimming, you know, what else can they do? I think cross training is really good. And that's in general for stress related injuries or issues, not doing the same thing all the time. Even if you, if you're running every time, but you're doing different distances, different terrain, making sure your shoes are good, that they've got a lot of cushion to them, that they fit you well, that they're not packed out, you know, that shoes only have so many miles on them. And that probably varies a bit by how you run and what the shoes are. I don't think it's, it's not uniform across all shoes and, and probably body weight impacts that some too. Maybe sometimes you're running on hills and sometimes you're running on more of a grassy surface or just mixing it up helps a lot. But I do think using a bike or swimming, going on a walk sometimes or a vigorous hike or just not always doing the same thing is a good idea in general, particularly for the feet. So you're just not constantly putting the same stresses on it all the time. All of our runners, please take these words to heart. It will save you a trip to see us. You had mentioned calcaneal stress fractures. Let's talk about stress fractures. My experience, typically second, third metatarsal necks. I've seen them in the tibia, but if we're talking about the athlete, I think it's typically metatarsal necks. Although I know it can happen in other places. So what's your experience with that? You're absolutely right. You know, the, the so-called March fracture, and they call it a March fracture because military recruits often doing basic training and they're marching with tons of weight on. Maybe they weren't used to doing that and certainly not used to doing it with as much frequency or as much weight on their shoulders. And then they don't want to complain because they're just joined the military. And then next thing they know, they've got a stress fracture. The good thing about those metatarsal neck or shaft stress fractures, whether it's the second, the third, you can get it in the fourth, is they tend to do fine. They tend to heal. They aren't the so-called high-risk stress fractures that we worry about in the foot. But as you start coming proximal, those base fractures do not do well. So the closer you get second metatarsal base is actually a relatively common place for a stress fracture in the foot that I see. And those are almost basically the same as like the fifth metatarsal stress fracture or the the Jones fracture, the zone two and three fractures that happen in the foot that can be certainly season ending, if not career ending for certain athletes, because they can take forever to heal. And sometimes even with surgery might not heal. So you really should think about those transverse second, third metatarsal base stress fractures as worrisome ones that need closer attention, closer follow-up, probably be a lot more aggressive about getting the athlete off of the foot, potentially periods of non-weight bearing, bone stimulators things like that. Those are a lot more likely to need even surgery. Whereas those neck stress fractures basically never are going to need surgery. They'll do fine with a period of time off. But time off doesn't necessarily mean can't play sports, can't do anything. It, it, it just means getting some stress off the foot. So if a patient can run for 10 miles 
and they're fine. But as soon as they go to 11 miles, they hurt. That's their threshold and, and it's okay. And maybe you're stiffening up their shoe with a carbon fiber plate or using a different design of a shoe, something that's got a bit of a rocker bottom to it. There's lots of options. One of them, you know, lots of my patients do well with things like hokas, for example, which can be good for that kind of thing. But it, there's no specific, again, no specific brand or design, but typically something like that that's got some stress, that getting some stress off the foot will help. But, you know, some patients can't even walk down the hall without their foot hurting a lot, in which case maybe you do need to have them in a boot and or using a crutch or cane. Or, and then sometimes if it's one of those high risk stress fractures, you're probably going to have them non-weight-bearing in a boot or like I said, potentially even be considering the bone stimulator, et cetera, depending on the location and what the x-rays look like. Those can take months and months and months to heal and again, may even require surgery. What about a, a tibia stress fracture? We hear about shin splints. We talked about that before. What do you look for on an x-ray? What's the first sign of a stress fracture of the tibia? Often you won't see anything on the x-ray if it's early, and that's kind of what you hope. You're really hoping to not see much and catch it before it really truly even breaks or just a stress reaction, which is, in general, that's the precursor to the true stress fracture where you only see like edema on an MRI and x-rays will be normal. But if it is really stress fracture or even a chronic stress reaction, you start getting cortical thickening. You can start seeing some callus forming. What you really don't want to see, particularly for a tibia, is a they call it the dreaded black line. And if you can see a tibial stress fracture on an x-ray, that's a bad sign. You don't want to see that. And if, certainly, I guess if it's asymptomatic and you can see something on an x-ray, uh, that maybe is fine. But if they're hurting a lot in the tibia and you can see something on an x-ray, then and those often aren't going to do the best. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to need surgery, but that is one of those times where, where sometimes we do consider surgery for a tibial stress fracture, particularly in an athlete. But, but that surgery is not a no big deal kind of thing. I mean, it typically means a tibial intramedullary rod. So that's a big deal. Yeah, that's reason enough to shut down, right? <laughs> yeah, that'll shut you down for a while. For sure. Dr. Bienz, thanks for your time again today. You're a, you know, a steady force on our podcast. We appreciate your time. A lot of good information and have a good one. Happy to be here. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.